When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. It is a week of transition here in the United States. It is a week of stagnation in tennis. Hundreds of members of the tennis community are in quarantine in Melbourne as well as in Adelaide. This has become a worldwide story, part Lord of the Flies and part uh, the sweet life of of Zach and Cody. Um, You have likely been following this via social media. It's been a strange week for tennis, so we figured we would Check in with uh, someone on the ground, our uh, good friend Robbie Koenig. Robbie is a former player, a broadcaster. Full disclosure, uh, one of my one of my friends on this caravan, and he is in Melbourne. He has quite a perspective about what it's been like in a hotel room. He was five days into the 14 when we spoke. He came to Melbourne from South Africa via Dubai. So uh, as a me- member of the media, he is not uh, entitled to five hours a day on the tennis court. He's in his room for... Uh, 14 straight days. So uh, Robbie's great about uh, the present, what 14 days in quarantine is like. We also talk a bit about the future, how this is all going to play out, this strange interval when the Australian Open commences, what impact this is going to have on players, on the mental and the physical side of the sport, what this all means going forward, and uh, whether there is unfairness. So many players quarantined in Melbourne hotel rooms, but uh, the top players luxuriating in, uh, in Adelaide. So uh, here with a, a fun and funny and wise perspective, here's Robbie. We're, we're relying on you to uh, give, give us a sense of the scene there. What, uh, what's it like? Uh, it's fun. It's fun, John. Um, I think you just got to prepare yourself for it. Uh, I, I'm a little disappointed that some of the tennis players have complained, but at the same time, I understand their frustrations, especially the 72 you know, who have inadvertently been isolated um, because obviously the flights that they were on were tested positive. And I understand their frustrations totally um, because a lot of preparation goes into the first Grand Slam of the year. 
Um, so, yes, I was trying to think of a tennis analogy. And the thing that sprung to mind for, for those that were on the flights where there were positive tests, it's almost like a let cord, you know. You're in a good rally, you're well prepared, and suddenly the guy on the other side of the net has a let cord. And when it happens initially, you're pissed off. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, after uh, 30 seconds, or in this case, a day or two, you got to crack on and get on with it. And I think the guys, most of them have uh, certainly turned the corner now. They've accepted their position of where they're at. But I don't think we could hold it against them that they were a bit annoyed uh, initially. The ones I don't have any sympathy for are the ones that are getting out to practice um, on a daily basis. I don't think they should have uh, any grievances because I think Craig Tiley and his team have done a phenomenal job. But, you know, I know a lot of people that are part of Tennis Australia and and these individuals, many of them, uh, you know, they've been working 20-hour days for the last six weeks. So just to give give you a sense of what they've been going through, um, it's important that the players do show some gratitude. What? Tell me about you. How did you make the decision to go down there and – so do I have this right? You're you're on you're on the 14 day variety. You're I mean you're not getting out of the room, are you? <laughs> yeah, the 14 day variety. I like the way you phrased that one. Uh, yeah, that's me. So I came from from South Africa. Uh, we've got a pretty bad down there. So to come to Australia was probably a, a good thing. But I flew via Doha, Durban to Doha direct, and then I hooked up with one of the charter flights. I was one of the charter flights out of. Doha. I was the one prior to the final one that uh, had a positive test. That was the last one to test positive. And then Doha, Melbourne, direct. A right. couple of players on my plane. I think Feli Lopez was on there. Horatio Zabayos. Uh, Dusan Lajevic was on it. Um, one or two other guys so, uh, that I didn't recognize. But yeah, and then uh, we all came in together. But I'll tell you what, it was like something out of NCIS. Coming in here, man, it was the amount of security, John, was incredible. It was really something out of a Hollywood movie. Yeah. They, uh, they are not messing around is what someone told me like in October. And that still seems to be the case. So wait, so wait, were you on a flight that was contaminated or can you go outside your room? No, I, ca- I couldn't go outside my room anyway because the commentators, um, that's the deal for us. If you were paired with a player, you could go outside of your room. But there were a couple of flights from Doha, but the one I was on wasn't contaminated. The one that flew a couple hours after me was. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what, I mean, you know, everyone sort of jokes about it. I, I, I got to say, I had to, I worked with a colleague who tested positive. So I had to go into isolation for three or four days. It was miserable. I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy. I, I had a hotel room like you do and got uber eats and it sounds fairly similar and after three or four days i was bouncing off the wall i was i i have some sympathy here for uh for 14 days of this what what are you doing all day no no question john and and i'm with you and you know like i said and i just want to highlight that it's okay to be pissed off and i don't think the people of victoria should be too upset with some of the players because they were pissed off when they went into lockdown right. you know whenever they started it's it's not comfortable for anybody and just because these guys have got a lot of money doesn't make it any less comfortable for them because they're in a hotel room it's it's the fact that you can't find nobody likes to be restricted whether you're in a house or whether you're in a hotel room but it's tough to fill your days and i think it's important to have structure i'm trying to wake up as late as possible um uh, and then i'll and do, I'm lucky I've got a bike in my room so I can do a, a bit of fitness and then um, how do you I get fit, out? Fit, 
I just, uh, I just requested it. It was one of my requests. I, I said, look, if, I, if I'm coming down here, you want me part of the, the team, I'm happy to quarantine, but please, if there's one favor that I could ask for, I really need some sort of exercise equipment in my room. They, they sent a couple of bands and, and an exercise bike. And, you know, that's where Tennis Australia is unbelievable. You make these kind of requests, they will do everything in their power right. to, to make it possible for you. So it's difficult to fill the hours that every day, you know, I'm catching up with a lot of friends, perhaps people that I haven't spoken to for a while. I'm doing a couple of podcasts and Zoom, Zoom calls and giving people back home and other places around the world a feel of what it's like here. But, but it's not easy. I've got my golf clubs with me, so I'm doing a bit of chipping in the room and I have conversations with Colin Fleming, who's part of the, the commentary team as well. Um, he loves his golf, so doing a little bit of that. And then, and then at around four o'clock, again, I jump on the bike um, do some exercise, push-ups, sit-ups, more chipping. And then, um, yeah, you just try and draw everything out. So you do a little bit of biking and then you get off, watch a bit of TV, do another session of biking. You try and draw everything out as long as you can. So what would normally be probably be a half an hour workout on the bike, you try and draw it out to an hour and a half. Right. Um, so that's kind of how I'm trying to structure my days. And then watching some documentaries, always like watching a couple of documentaries. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm watching this Formula One documentary at the moment, which is fascinating. I don't love the sport at all. Never watch Formula One racing. And I'm watching this Drive to Survive. Unbelievable documentary. I can highly recommend it. I'll give you, uh, you want some documentaries? I'll give you, yeah, give me, give give, give me a couple. You got, uh, you got Tiger Woods and there, there's a pivotal scene that takes place at the Crown Casino in Melbourne as a bonus. So yes. Yeah, the, uh, the HBO tie. It's it's not without its flaws, but it's it's worth three hours of your time. I'll I'll send you my login. Um, what else should I send you? Uh, have you seen uh, the Bee Gees documentary? No, I love the Bee Gees. Put that on your list. Have yeah. you seen? It's uh, another good documentary I've seen. Uh, Broken noses and um, yeah, what what else? The Go Go's documentary is good. Okay, I, I see. I like the music theme there, John. I'm a big music fan. All right, we so, got uh, uh, a couple of those. There's a good James Brown. There, right, we we got one day covered already. The Tiger Woods is three hours. Um, what what uh, what about the food situation for you? Um, yeah, it's fine. It's it's not a restaurant five star Melbourne food, but it's right. it's more than adequate. It's uh, it's more than adequate. Um, you got to remember, I served one year in the military when I came out of high school in South Africa. So I'm used to very basic food. That six weeks of basic training that I did uh, made me realize I could pretty much put up with anything in life. So perhaps Good. you're asking the wrong guy. But the food is fine. It's consistent. You get on a daily basis. Plus, if you don't like it, you can order Uber Eats. So there's, uh, there's no excuses there. And it's pretty solid as far as the timings are concerned. They come... They give you a window every day. There's a two or three hour window that they're going to deliver the food, but it's pretty much within a half an hour window to be fair to them. What, um, um, the, and the what, testing is regular. Um, that's yeah. one thing that people that's need true. to know how much testing is getting done. John, you're mm -hmm. getting tested every day. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This is, uh, this is PCR. Uh, PCR, uh, we do a couple of PCRs throughout the course, but we do some in the mouth as well. So you don't do up the nose every day. That's like every third or fourth day. Um, but in the back of the mouth, you get it done in between times. So no stone is left unturned. I think it's a bit of, um, I get the feeling that Channel 7 is sensationalizing things. You know, they had the old TV rights for the Australian Open. And I just, I just get a feel that they're trying to upset the, the apple cart a little bit and sensationalize everything, um, which I think is a little unfair. That's but interesting. I guess that's the way the media operates, because obviously their biggest opposition, Channel 9, has uh, the tennis now that they won the bid for that. So I often wonder if, you know, that's playing into this whole drama that the media is creating. Do you think most of the players have a sense? I mean, I've, I've gotten calls from BBC and, the, you know, talked to people all over the world. This, the, the players have a sense. Do they know that this has actually become quite a story? You know, Rothenberg had a big piece in the New York Times today. I mean, this is actually, it's a lot of social media posts and it's a lot of sort of, you know, Cornet and Christea. And, and I, I actually, am, I'm, I have a fair amount of sympathy as you do. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen anything that's been really that egregious, but do you suspect the players realize that this has become uh, the global story it has? That's a good question. Um... Perhaps with social media, you know, when when somebody posts something, you get a sense of the size of the backlash. And I think we saw a quick U-turn from somebody like Elise Cornet. Um, but perhaps they don't. Maybe it's maybe in, in the back of mind, I'm thinking that they don't probably get the full scale of it. Um, of course, I'm seeing it here front and center on, on the news and the sports channels. But, you know, back at home, it's it's getting a little bit. All the sports channels are getting it, right? But I'm not sure how to answer that one. To be fair, John, um, do you have a? I don't know what like in America. What's it like in America? What are you guys feeling? I mean, New it's, York Times. It's it's a story. I mean, I've I've gotten more requests to talk about this than probably anything since Djokovic got disqualified. And, you know, it's a sensational story and everyone's sort of, it's, you know, it's millionaire tennis players going to this country. I mean, it's sort of, as you say, it's, it's kind of catnip for media. It's, it's yeah. sloppily reported. I mean, I honestly haven't seen that many, you know, did, did I think Bernie Tomic's girlfriend's video was the coolest thing? Probably not, but I, I haven't seen it's, it's, it's like you say, it's, it's really annoying. It's really exasperating to feel that isolated. I, I haven't seen any egregious uh, violations. Oh. It's kind of a sexy media story of, you know, young millionaire tennis players before getting $100,000 complaining about, uh, you know, Uber Eats in a, in, a country with, uh, <laughs> in a country with the COVID rate that's the envy of the world. Yeah, but, but okay, just to touch on all of those things, first of all, I thought, obviously, Bernie Tomic's uh, girlfriend was taking the Mickey, right? I mean, that was funny. That was that wasn't so much having a go at the government for right. for the strict lockdown. I think everybody in the tennis community had a good laugh about that, knowing what Tomic is like. So you know, I'm definitely not going to hold that against him or her. Um, and you know, as far as the privilege to be here, 
the tennis player, millionaire dude, first of all, they've earned the right to be here. Um, you know, by, by being one of the, the top 120 players on the planet, they've earned the right, if the tournament was going to be played, they've earned the right to be invited here to play. Right. Um, that's the one thing. And, and, and as far as the money goes, I know that's been bandied around a lot. Um, well, that's part of the deal, right? They wouldn't be here. If so, so, you know, the market, no the market money. is the market. Nobody's doing this for charity. Clearly, there's value in holding this event. And it's the same in any workplace. And I was just having a look at some of the numbers as well. And, you know, my point is it's a, a mutually beneficial relationship. Right. Players must appreciate the tournament. And, and, uh, and, and it's, not even the, it's not the tournament appreciating the players, but it's, it's the people here in Victoria that seem, you know, very on edge. And just to give you an idea, this event last year injected $387 million into the local economy. And over the last decade, it's been $2.7 billion. Right. This tournament is what it's given the local people. So um, whilst I understand they want to protect this, this COVID space that they have, um, I think sometimes they, they've been a little harsh on some of the players. We're talking about maybe five or six players out of, what, 350 here? That's 0.01% of the players exactly. have said some stupid stuff. And unfortunately, it tarnishes the reputation of so many other good people out there. And I think that's what frustrates me. So, um, I mean, I think you're right. I think also if, if you're in this world, you roll your eyes at Bernie Tomic and you know who, you know that Cornet can be, be a bit theatrical, but at heart is probably a, a nice, thoughtful person. You sort of know these characters. The, the one thing I've heard inside tennis, and I don't know if you have strong thoughts about this, is um, there's some real objections to this, what was termed to me Camp Adelaide, this whole, uh, this whole Adelaide component is in, inside of tennis. That seems to have gotten a lot of uh, pushback. Do you, uh, you have thoughts on that? Yes, I think you're right. Um, the problem was, how did you choose who wasn't going to be in Melbourne? Because from what I believe, Victoria only issued like 1,200 um, yeah, so 1,200 people were allowed to come in and we were just over that. So they had to find a way of, of getting 50 or so people into another part of the country. And of course, Adelaide was the place where it was going to happen because the numbers were good there. South Australia has been fantastic. I was speaking to Roger Rashid about that. So I think their logical thought was, well, I'll put on an exhibition with the best players and make everybody in Adelaide happy um, because that's an easy thing to do, but right. I didn't realize that the restrictions there were, were even softer than what they are here. So yeah, I can understand the grievances. Um, but I think when you've been around the sport, as long as we have, John, um, is it fair to say those players have earned the right to, to be treated slightly differently? It's never an even playing field. Um, mm -hmm. No, and I don't know if that's, really, that's uh, the right answer for me because in a utopian world, we all want level playing fields, but it's just not the case. They get the best practice times, you know, because they've got more money, they've got bigger entourages. Right. You know, it, it's almost self-perpetuating at one stage. They weren't as privileged as those that came before them and, and they had to work their way up the totem pole. So I don't know. How, how do you choose on 50 players to go to, to Adelaide? How do you make that decision? How would you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, for, I, I should say that there, there is suspicion that uh, 
they, they could have scrounged up the extra rooms in Melbourne, but this was a way to accommodate and make the destination more appealing to the very top stars. And there may have been some, uh, you know, there, there may have been some behind the scenes uh, negotiating. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll come to Melbourne, but we ain't spending 14 days in the Park Hyatt. We need something uh, a, a little more uh, accommodating. Uh, yep. I, you know, I, it's, it's tough, right? Because we, we all, it's exactly what you said. It's this balance of interest. We all like a level playing field. We all like equality, but it's a star driven sport. So, someone's got to play the night session. So someone's yep. got to play, uh, you know, on, on the biggest courts. Should it not be the most accomplished players? Uh, yeah, hard, hard so, to argue against what you're saying, but the, um, what, uh, what impact do you think all of this, let's, let's set aside the Adelaide component. Um, what impact do you think this is going to have on the sport, on the competition? For, 14 days, players are going to come out. Some of them haven't, gonna, you know, so, some of them won't have left their room for 14 days. What is the impact of all this mentally and physically on the tennis, do you suspect? It's going to be fascinating. Um, I think it's important to, to let your listeners know that there, there will be a week of tennis before the Australian Open starts. So they don't go into the Australian Open cold, but those 70-odd 70, 70 players will play their first event with very little practice. Um, you know, this is such a repetitive sport, and I think tennis players by default love the repetition of day in, day out. I was trying to think of other sports that rely so much on on that athletic repetition, you know, golf, you're static. So that's not, it's not quite the same. Right. Uh, swimming sprung to mind. I know swimmers, I know a couple of world-class swimmers and they're very much into their repetition. Um, but again, I, I would argue that their skill set is not as wide ranging as tennis players. So I think those that come out of quarantine after two weeks, they're definitely going to be at a disadvantage. No question about it. Um, I think it's how they approach it mentally. I think if they, they play with a bit of reckless abandon in that first week and, and play loose, I think that's the way they'll give themselves the best shot. Talk themselves down um, and then play, just go for it. And then I think use that, that week as not only a match week, but also a training week. As soon as you're, in the tour, as soon as you're out of the tournament, make sure you hit the practice course hard to get up the reps. Uh, if you're winning matches, you do double sessions. It's great to be winning, right? First of all, mm -hmm. sign up for that every day of the week. And then once you finish your match, go and try and get in as many repetitions as you can. Work on the fitness as much as you can to get yourself ready for Australia. But, um, you know, Renee Stubbs uh, did a very interesting interview with Bianca Andrescu. I think it was about October time last year. And I was thinking of all the players who might come out of this the best. And when I read, uh, when I listened to that interview about how much visualization she did and how mentally prepared she was when she came back from her injury uh, post-winning, what was it, uh, Indian Wells or Miami, and then winning the US Open later on that year. I just thought if there's one player that springs to mind out of all this group of 72 that are doing a 14-day hard lockdown, um, I reckon Andrescu might be the top seed for me. She would be the one that I would pick to do the most damage. A, we should point out that her, she, she isn't merely doing 14 days of hard lockdown. Her, her coach tested positive. So she, a, apart from the 14 day lockdown, has a, you know, a, a personal connection and theoretically exposure to someone who tested positive. That, that's really interesting, though, in terms of uh, 
you know, we, we, we keep hearing about, the, they said, well, and I think John Millman talked about this. A number of players have said, you know, it's just not possible to be mentally sharp and be mentally prepared to play mm-hmm. after 14 days. And I'm wondering sort of how that manifests itself, right? I mean, the, the physical is easy, right? I mean, we'll, we'll see players and they'll cramp or they'll, you know, have, have some muscle pulls. When players say mentally it's just going to be so difficult, how, yeah. does that, how does that come out during a match? What, what does that really mean? Is it an exhaustion? Is it lack of confidence? What, what does that really look like? That's, that's a great question. And, and I want to rewind it one step because the physical um, and the mental go hand in hand. So when you know that you're not physically as, as good as you should be in a match, it manifests, it manifests itself in terms of um, when you're playing a long rally, you, you check out of the point a little earlier. You go for a forehand down the line that normally you wouldn't because you would have the endurance to stay in the point longer. Then you multiply that over points, games, and sets. When you think in our sport, a couple of points here and there can determine the outcome of a match. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start making poor decisions because you don't have the stamina to stay in a point, you know that's, that's when you lose sets and that's when you lose matches. So it's just this incremental degradation of your game that happens. When, when you say a person is not mentally quite there, you make bad choices. And in this case, I think the choices would be um, related to, first of all, not being fit enough. And then second of all, you doubt your, your skill set because you haven't put in the reps. Mm-hmm. Um, some players, in fact, most players need those reps. There's very few guys out there who, who can just rely on the physical and say, you know, once I get on that match court, I just trust my skill set. I've hit 10 million balls in my life. You know, hitting three or 400, uh, three or 400 more uh, in a week is not going to make any difference. And, and that's a special mindset to have if you can have it, but very few have it, as we know, John. You have, uh, you have strong thoughts, given the extenuating circumstances, best of three versus best of five? Not really. I, I, haven't, I haven't given it too much thought. Um, the majors for me are, are best of, of five sets. And yeah, just you just get on with it as best as you can. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't be opposed to it if, if down the line, all the majors wanted to go to two out of three. I've often thought about it, given the way uh, the attention span of people is going these days. But a uh, major is a major. I think it would be too draconian just to, to do one, just right. to change one now. We, we should point out, I mean, this has sort of come up on social media, and I think even some players reference it, but, but I think Ty, Craig Tiley's already said firmly we're sticking with best of five. Um, I mean, I think one thing that's been lost in this, and I don't know if you even saw this, even something as simple as coming in from the airport, once you get through this quarantine, once you, you've had your negative tests and you've done your 14 days and you're not shedding and um, you're cleared, what do you anticipate the scene being like? You know, that is one thing. Speaking to people in Craig's team is, is once they come out the other side of this, and they knew this was going to be tough, players are going to have the best experience they've had in 12 months. There's going to be people around, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be playing in front of fans. It, it's going to be 
not exactly like it was in the good old days, but it's certainly going to be a lot better of an environment than they've played at. And I think that connection with the crowd, um, you know, having atmosphere is going to infuse them with the feel-good factor that they haven't had. And I think that's going to help repair some of the hardships that they've been through over the two weeks, if you want to call them hardships, relative to what they're used to having, John. Uh, and I think that's the, the biggest positive. Um, you know, I always think about the difference between discipline and motivation. Motivation is, um, is, is fleeting, whereas discipline is something that you have to do every day and you get to feel good afterwards. You might not like what you're doing, but you get to feel good afterwards. And that's what this 14 days is for the player. It's unbelievable discipline, but at the end of it all, they're going to get to feel unreal when they play in front of the fans here. And, and for most of them, they love coming down here. So I think the feel-good factor is going to be really high when the, when the tennis kicks off. You want to uh, – I, I, I think you're totally right. I also I – mean, one thing I noticed, it's, it's, it's silly, but you watch these – the Channel 7 clips we're talking about that I, I agree yeah. have, been, uh, have, have veered towards sensational. And I see these reporters and I say, what the hell are they doing without wearing a mask? And then you say, oh, that's right. There's no community spread here. So once you yes. actually get through this and once you uh, are cleared, I, I suspect you'll, I mean, you tell, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I, I suspect this will seem like a fairly conventional tournament and you might eat, eat outdoors in restaurants. And as you say, there will be fans on site. I mean, I imagine this will not be like the U.S. Open or the French Open once you get through this rough period of, of two weeks in a hotel room. Totally. And, and I think it's, uh, you know, if, if I'm a coach or if I'm an agent of one of these players, I'm infusing them with that outlook. I'm trying to force them not to concentrate on the here and now. Do whatever you can to, to be as best prepared, of course. Got to take care of the here and now. But my, my main focus is, hey, there's a lot at the end of the tunnel and it's going to be, you know, a fun, hopefully, uh, two weeks, maybe even three weeks for some and make the most of the situation. The fact that they can play for a lot of money, they've earned the right to play for that. You know, that's great. Um, nice to get away from Europe at this time of the year, given everything that's going on there. It's cold. And uh, you know, players absolutely love coming down here. And I hope they make the most of it because, you know, already Indian Wells has been cancelled. Um, right. Hopefully some of the other tournaments go ahead. So it's an opportunity, man. Make the most of it and focus on, on the good stuff. Uh you want, you, you want my prediction and you'll tell me if you agree or disagree. Okay, go for it. Let me hear it. Did you, I, I can't remember. I, and you know, we were also isolated. Did, did you go to Paris? Did you go to the... Uh... I didn't, no. So, you know, it, it was not like a conventional French Open and not just because it was in October and there was a lot of, is this really a wise thing to do? And you had, you know, they didn't have enough hand sanitizer and they may have let in too many fans. <laughs> and... You know, Zverev is playing with symptoms. What an idiot. And you know what? By the last few days, you had Nadal playing peerless tennis. You had a great Djokovic five-setter in the semis. You had Schwanta. You had this Polish teenager emerge. And everybody left thinking this was, this was a major. N nobody said, I wish they hadn't held it. All the controversies in week one sort of washed away. And we were left with... Nadal holding the trophy and this new teenage star on the women's side. I, I yeah. suspect that five or six weeks from now, Djokovic will win this event and, you know, I don't know, Serena will make a run at Margaret Court or Osaka will win and 
we will not be talking about Bernard Tomic's girlfriend, uh, you know, on February 23rd or whatever it is. Um, that's, that's such a good assessment. Um, and you're so right. I think everybody's just nitpicking at the moment to sensationalize things, but it's, it's such a good tournament. Um, there's going to be so many stories as well uh, within the event, um, you know, given what's happened in these 14 days. So, you know, great storylines the first week, but um, you're right. At the end of it, when it's all said and done, if it's a new champion, great, we'll be hopping on about, about whoever the new champion is, like we did with Shrantek when she won at the French. And, and you know, if it's, it's one of the old guard, we'll, you know, we'll be going down that storyline of, of when are these guys are going to be able to challenge on, on a more regular basis. So, um, yeah, when it's all said and done, uh, you're exactly right. I think what's happened in the opening couple of days here was expected to a certain degree. It was never going to be perfect, was it? Um, and the tennis will overshadow everything. It's tough for me to add to what you said because I think you've summed it up beautifully. You, you sound like a man that uh, might, might not be ideal, but you're, you're going to get through these next eight, nine days. So, sounds like you've got the, uh, the perspective and the stamina and the durability to get through this. I don't mind it, man. You find stuff to do. Um, and you know what? I guess for me, I, I'm comfortable in my own skin, John. I don't always have to have people around me. Mm. And I've, I wonder if that's something that, you know, the tennis players need all the time. Maybe they don't like to be on their own. They've always got people around them. Um, and you know, being isolated, they're not comfortable in their own skin and, and amusing themselves the whole time. So, yeah, no problem for me. Uh, I've got perspective on this one. Introvert, extrovert. I mean, I you know, I, I hate to, to look at it this way because I, I realize these are these are real people with uh, enduring this, but it, it really is kind of a fascinating. I mean, it's like a it's like the the Grand Hyatt has turned into a great social science laboratory. I mean, it's really kind of a fascinating. Uh, <laughs> social science experiment. But isn't it just, um, and I think you can see the personalities of some of the players coming out now. The, um, all right, this is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy we were able to do this. You, uh, you, you represent the, the, the sport in captivity well. Everyone should have your perspective and your, uh, your sensibilities. Um, so, I don't know about that, John, um, but I certainly uh, love being here. It is great to be here. You know, for guys like me, it's a privilege to be here. I think, as I said earlier, for the tennis players, they've earned their right to be here. Um, so, yeah, got to make the most of it and uh, can't wait for it to, to get underway. I'm going to uh, pay for this podcast by sending you my HBO login and you'll have three hours of Tiger Woods. How's that? Sounds a good quid pro quo. Thanks. We'll see you uh, down the road, but uh, thanks, thanks. Hang in there, and uh, good, good man. We look forward to your coverage. Thanks, JW. All right, take it easy, buddy. All right, uh, that was great. Thanks to the guest. Enjoyed that a lot. Uh, Robbie is always uh, someone who it's a pleasure catching up with. He caught me a little bit off guard on the uh, the documentary calls. Feel free to send in your own. Uh, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets was the one I was thinking of. Anyway, uh, we hope that uh, the, the players do well. We hope everyone stays healthy. We hope everyone stays sane. Uh, this is a, a mental test like no other, and it will be interesting to see how this plays out when the 2021 Australian Open commences. Uh, that will do it for this week. So thanks again to Robbie. Thanks to Jamie, as always, for her behind-the-scenes handiwork and, and technical wizardry. 
Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We will do another one of these in a week. Subscribe, leave a review, keep the guest suggestions coming, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your finer podcasts. Stay safe, stay sane, and hopefully by the time we do this, uh, tennis will be out of its collective quarantine. All right, have a good week, everyone. We'll be right back.